All right, uh, welcome to another episode of Swimming in the Void. I'm your host, Matthew Barber. And I'm Hyunsoo Moon. We're two filmmakers and former evangelicals having conversations about taboos, psychedelics, spirituality, and our journey into the void of life. Sometimes it'll just be Moon and I talking about our experiences. Other times we'll invite a guest, sometimes three, four, I don't know how many we can fit in this room, uh, to dive further into a specific topic. Today we have Lauren Ross, who is a musician, a Buddhist, one of my best friends in the world. Um, obviously, she's a Buddhist, so we discuss Buddhism, uh, clinical depression, karma, Pol Pot. Apparently, no one knew who Pol Pot was, and I couldn't even figure out how to describe him. And I actually had to look him up to make sure he was who I thought he was. I'm like, is he really that bad? Yes, he really was that bad. Um, and I also try to fake my way through epigenetics before Moon corrects me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is one of the things that I actually... Um, I was thinking about as I was editing these pod, these episodes, I'm like, do I want to sound like an idiot? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, we were on Orpheus when, you know, when we were talking about, uh, when I was talking about, um, uh, what's that movie? What's the, uh, sound of metal, sound of metal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, and there was a whole, yeah. there's that moment where I'm just like, I like it because they don't, they don't shine a light on his race. And right. then he, we had this great discussion on why he feels it's important to talk about it. Right. And I'm just like, Oh God, I don't want to include that. Cause then I don't want to see him as like, does that make me racist by saying, saying that? Right. But I'm like, no, that's part of the journey. Right. Uh, so in here, I'm going to leave my pretending I know what epigenetics is. <laughs> um, especially things like race. That's a, that's a tricky one. Uh, because if you we, can't tell I'm white. Yeah. Uh, you're white and Morpheus is black and I'm Asian. I'm Korean. I do think that white people in general need to understand that it's okay when you have bias and blind spots. Right now I'm working on a documentary in Iowa about this town that's a very diverse population because of the meatpacking plant there basically. Uh, and a lot of immigrants go there to work there. And I was having a conversation with uh, one of the Latinx women there who was talking about how to correct microaggression basically. Uh, because she was talking to uh, this other white lady about it who's, who's one of the most wonderful people I know. She's not racist at all, but she does have certain blind spots um, just because you grow up that way. You know, it's, 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 al it's almost impossible for someone to not have blind spots. The same way I grew up not seeing a single black person who wasn't a criminal on television because I grew up in Korea and all I was exposed to in terms of black people were television where they were cast as the criminals. It's just conditioning. You know, I, w I grew up that way. Yeah. So if as an 11 year old child, I come to the United States and all of a sudden I go, oh, that's not my fault. It's just, I, I just wasn't exposed. I was ignorant, you know? Um, so I do think that there are certain experiences that I think white people are just going to have some blind spots for because they just never had that experience. They yeah. never, they don't know what it's like to be stopped by the police and fear for your life. They don't know what it's like to, um, to not be uh, seen as another race, like you're just an, you're just an American. I'm always seen as an Asian American. Yeah, I'm, yeah. That person is always seen as African American. That, per but white people are always just seen as American. Yeah, I'm not seen as Scottish American, even though I I, I am. You right, know? right. You're just like, white. Yeah. You know, it's it's just like uh, you're the you're the status quo. You yeah. know, so I I I think it's okay. You know, I think that's I I 
as much as I, as as much as uh, the quote unquote woke culture will criticize white people, I do want to say, uh, as a person of color and Asian American, that it's okay. You know, it's it's okay. We're not saying you're bad people. We're just telling you that this is our experience, and we just have to make these little adjustments as you as we go along. Yeah. But the last thing I'll say, uh, just um, I think one of the things that I am going to struggle with on this podcast in my own in my own way is like is how to have conversations on this. Because even as I was listening to uh, as I was editing the, the episode with Orpheus, um, I. I, I mean, I chose to like, I, I stayed quiet for a lot of it um, mm. uh, because I felt that was right. But as I was talking, as I, I, I had all these thoughts and uh, other ideas and, uh, and modifiers to my original statement and, um, and I'm like, oh man, I wish I would have said this or said that. And I felt like, I felt like it's not a place for me to, to, to say anything. Mm. Um, but even though it's, 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 I'm one of the hosts of this podcast, you know, and, and like, do I just you know, and this is something that maybe you and I can explore is like, um, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm working on like listening and not interjecting and not like, man, you know, white explaining or mansplaining or any, mm -hmm. any of that stuff. But at the same time, like, Oh, but I have other thoughts and opinions on this. Some of them, which may be, you know, spot on other and others might be ignorant and, and, mm -hmm. and racially biased and need to be called out. So something, maybe, maybe that's something we can have an episode on at some point is talking about that kind of stuff and, and how to navigate those, those What things. did you want to say? Like, what, what were the thoughts? Uh, it was, he was, uh, we were talking about Sound of Metal and I'm, I'm just like, I, like, sometimes I just want to watch a movie where they don't say, it's like he was. He was just. I. I, I don't. I don't know what race Riz Ahmed is. I think he's. Uh, I think know, he's Egyptian. He's Egyptian. Um, yeah. Or uh, anyway, uh, it's like it, it was just. He was. He just had a job. Mm -hmm. He just did his thing. And right. in the, in the same way, I know Bill Cosby is is speaking of taboo. He's fucking taboo. You know that that guy. But um, we studied like we studied him in uh, in media theory, right? Mm. And one of the things that you know. Uh, was you know that they say was great for for the culture was it, it they just normalized it like it wasn't it wasn't it was just a black a black person doing a job that was historically like white people would be doing this sort of stuff right so he was a doctor uh, yeah he was successful yeah yeah and so i think some i think sometimes yes and so i feel like I feel like it doesn't have to be to make a make a pun. Like it doesn't have to be black and white, right? Like, yes, sometimes we need films that directly call out and, and talk about race. We need films that that highlight what happened uh, on Juneteenth, which is which is going to be you know, or the um, right. the Oklahoma massacre, right? right. Um, we need we need to tell those stories. We can't forget that stuff. We need to like hang a lantern on that stuff. Like this happened. Right. But other times, we I think we need films that are just like people just doing people things. And, right. um, I think one of the things that needs to happen in Hollywood is like, uh, you know, one of the biases that Hollywood has had is like, when you read a description about a character and there's no race implied, everyone just immediately thinks white. Right. Right. Um, what needs to happen and what is happening, I, I see is like, okay, why can't any race play this part? Right. You know, right. Um, and this movie, it could be like like any action movie, right? Not gonna, we're not gonna make a big diatribe about you know race, but it's like it's important that we see people who you know people of color, you know, doing you know heroic things. People of color, like Asian men kissing the woman, right? Because right, right. you were talking about all the Jet Li stuff, right? Right, right. And that's important too. So 
Um, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I could, I didn't feel comfortable, especially because, you know, I had, you know, my Asian co-host and right. black, you know, guest on to right. be like, all right, you guys have the conversation. Right, so. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I, I think that's a valid point, you know, but I do, I think what Morpheus was just pointing Mor- out. Morpheus. Morpheus. <laughs> uh, what he was pointing out was Morpheus. that. Yeah. Morpheus was pointing Orpheus. out. What? Orpheus. What? Orpheus. Not Morpheus. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I keep saying Morpheus. Uh, is that bad? Because I'm talking. I'm, I'm thinking of Morpheus from Matrix. Basically, uh, <laughs> he's kind of like Morpheus. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what what he was just yeah pointing out was that um, it, it can't it, it can't just be that yeah it can't just be the 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 normal normalization you know yeah. that the, um, we can't just be blind to it. It feels like. I think it kind of feels like we are almost turning a blind eye to it sometimes. Yeah. Because it's one thing to, for example, Sound of Metal, right? Really, it's it's a very it's something about very specific. It's about this musician and it's about his experience with hearing. Um, race doesn't. It's just it's just not part of the equation. On Cosby, on the other hand, race actually is a part of it because by the very uh, him casting as a doctor is a statement that a black doctor with a home and is, they're financially successful and have a wonderful family. And middle, quote, quote, middle class. Problems. Yeah, that that all is sort of like a statement. Um, now, I haven't watched too, I mean, I I watched uh, the Cosby Show when I was a kid, but I don't remember too many episodes specifically. Especially because I I guess uh, my problem would be something with the Cosby Show is that, well, I think a lot of black people did actually find that show to be really great. Like I remember, um, I mean, I've actually, I, yeah, I've actually not talked to too many black people about, about right. the show. I just remember I remember you know studying it in media theory. You know? Right. Well, I remember Chappelle talking about it, and Chappelle was like, "Yeah, he uh, he uh, he's a rapist now, but you can't ignore the fact that when he came on television, it was super empowering for all the black people. Mm. It, it just was." You know, you can't ignore that part. You know, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's 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 a uh, it's interesting. I I guess I guess at the end, yeah, it, it we need both. You know, it's a it's a balance. We'll, we'll keep having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is this I, this is an ever evolving conversation in in our culture and in our lives. Right. So uh, I don't want I don't want to, I don't want to shy away from it or be afraid of it. Right. Um, but I also don't want to be one of these people. I'm working on this. I don't want to be one of these people that like don't say anything mm-hmm. because then I'm not challenged. Right. You know, but so my internal, my internal life can stay, you know, biased, but my external life doesn't, which I think is a worse place to be personally. Right. I'd rather have my internal life match my external life. Right. Right. So, um, anyway, uh, I don't know how much of that will stay in, maybe yeah, all of we'll it, see. maybe none of it, but, uh, um, finally, uh, please subscribe wherever you get their podcast, like us, write a review, send us an email at swimming in the void podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at swimming in the void. And, uh, I think, yeah, that's everything. Let's uh, hit the show. This is the advantage of having a musician be a, a part of the <laughs> podcast. 
because their voice quality would be good. I actually noticed that about, uh, I don't know if you listened to uh, WTF with Mark Maron. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, whenever he has like musicians on, I think like they must record their own thing. Like he had Yo-Yo Ma on and his voice sounded great. Oh man, know? I'm sure whatever mic he uses for his cello is just like silky golden. <laughs> yeah, like no, it sounded amazing. But you know, it, it, you know, you get some, some random actor or whatever who's on Zoom with an iPad. It sounds like crap. But, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, I'm in an echoey space, but I can't tell because I've got headphones on. Yeah. <laughs> well, hi, Matt. Hi. So good to see your face. It's great to see yours and your little plant. I know. It's not so little, actually. I'm I'm sorry for. I know. Um, Don't that's describing not... it incorrectly. <laughs> and it, I, it's it's doing so well. She's doing so well. A new growth just popped up. So Aww. she's saying she's happy here. So I love it. This <sighs> is my new. This is my new house, by the way. You haven't been here. No, I have not. It looks great. Yeah, this is just half of it. My, my friend is building a tiki lounge in my backyard. That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like there there can be a lot said with the whole plant thing. And you were saying like, oh, like I can tell that my plant is happy because it's showing me via this action and this action. It's like, God, communication, like good communication changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like that's what this world is just, we're all constantly bumping up against, uh, you know, souls that, uh, that have different communication styles and, you know, then there's different wounds that, that have prevented them from being vulnerable. And so the communication comes out wonky and then you misinterpret. And then next thing you know, there's like rockets being fired. Yeah. Or they just are so vulnerable that there's then instead of, rockets being fired they're just hiding in the bomb shelter <laughs> anticipating rockets that might not exist yeah there you go yeah, yeah. like uh, yeah it's uh the fight or flight sometimes it, it, it you're you're fleeing when you're when you should be staying sometimes you're fighting when you should just be you know fleeing like or you know whatever there's a lot of different yeah triggers ah hi hi so we're starting this podcast you're are technically our second guest and i'm so excited to have you on I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. So this is like, we're just, we're in the beginning stages of figuring out what this is. Um, uh, but what I mentioned in my email, I really want to start this off with just having conversations with my friends who have, um, uh, I'm still trying to put language to it, but I just want to talk, I talk to my friends about their, their spiritual practices, um, whether they have them or not, and just different ways of being. And this really sort of springboarded out of, um, all, all the exploration that Moon and I have been doing over the last <clears throat> 10 years and leaving the Christianity. And, and, um, and I think like finding ways to translate experience to other people's experiences and trying to understand um, different experiences. And uh, like Buddhism is, is something that is very, I'm very curious about. And I, I'm constantly dancing around and you've pulled me into a few things. Uh, and so... Yeah, so that's sort of that's sort of the setup. We, we can start we can start the interview officially at some point, but I just want to let you know where we're at. And Moon and I, Moon, you know, he helped me out and uh, was a, a big collaborator on Give Me Sex Jesus, and he's been on the number of my um, TV. He's been m moving the TV with me and everything. So he's awesome. Got his, he's a cool dude. I still think about Give Me Sex Jesus from time to time, like different images or interviews or like you know, fisheye shots or whatever, just like pop into my head. 
<laughs> oh my god! Well, how, did, I, how did the how, how did you how do you guys uh, did you guys first meet? I, the short answer is I was a music provider in shows that Matt used music. <laughs> yeah, but um, what, what 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 was the thing that like got us just... being friends though? It was like it was something on Chuck. Was it using? Was it oh a... no! You know, you know what it was? It was the thermals. Yes, it was. Yeah, and I think that I'm trying to remember if we then like actually met at a show. We met at their. Others? I think one of their shows. Like so, my one of my buddies from high school is in this band, the Thermals, and I started using them on Chuck, and you know Lauren was representing them for TV, and so Hutch said you should talk to Lauren, and you know that the rest is history. Yeah, I mean, even through email, it was just like, oh, we're going to get along. And then meeting up at the show, then it's like, oh, I'm going to invite you to like everything that we've got going on so that we can keep hanging out more. And and yeah, that's what's been so nice is like, I mean, I don't think of you as a work person in my life. You're one of my closest friends and our industries happen to overlap such that our art gets to overlap in certain ways. And that's awesome. Yeah, so I was talking to this... Um uh, this actress who's, who's just moved into town and she was like, how, like, how do you get community here in, in Hollywood? And, and my answer was from what I've seen, you actually don't get community from Hollywood. You find other ways outside of Hollywood to connect yourself. Something that bring a bit brings you together, whether it's you know, music or religion or spiritual practice. And if they happen to be in the industry, then that's great as well. You know, or like I have all of my expat friends who are friends because they're expats. Like the, the glue that keeps us together goes beyond this transactional uh, um, space that we have in Hollywood. Absolutely. Well put. And especially then like that idea of like, oh, if you're wanting to make friends in Hollywood, make them in other facets of your own life. And statistically, some of them probably are also in the entertainment world. <laughs> well, um, let's, uh, I mean, not that, the, not that, honestly, not that the podcast is going to be different than this, um, but I like to just start off with like, hey, everybody, this is Swimming in the Void with uh, Matt and Moon. We're still working on the opening, but we have a title. It's called Swimming in the Void. And today we have Lauren Ross, who has joined us. She is one of my best friends. She's one of the happiest people I know. She's a musician. She's queer. She's also a Buddhist and so much more. You can't, you can't box her in with just those three things, but that's where, that's where we'll start today. Um, anything else you'd like to add to that, Lauren? That I would be so happy to like be known as one of the happiest people in your life or just one of the happiest people you know. Like, I guess I just used the word happy a bunch in that sentence and I didn't mean to be quite that redundant, but like that just seems like, oh, I would love for that to be my life goal is to just be known as a smiley, happy person, especially if I can kind of rub that off on other people. Can, 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 can you just on, on your tombstone, just put uh, quote, she was one of the happiest people I knew dash Matt Barber. That's it. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> done. You know, it's funny. I almost said, like the kind of line of like, oh, I would be so stoked if on my tombstone it said something like she was always smiling or she was super happy. And then I was like, oh, but I don't know if I'm going to have a tombstone. Is this the time for me to think about that? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Ooh, that could be um, Moon. That could be something that we uh, that we a regular question we ask, like, what would you have on your tombstone or will you have a tombstone? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we've I, I, I've definitely talked about with my wife about that. I mean, I don't want to have a tombstone. 
I don't want to have a physical place, you know. I mean, I uh, maybe this could be an interesting beginning to our conversation. But me personally, uh, I would like to have my body somehow, you know, re-enter the ecosystem somehow. Like, like you know, uh, for example, the best example is I think uh, in Portland, there's a process that you can do legally where your body can be wrapped up in some sort of a bag and be buried, and mushrooms and other things grow out of it. You know, like I, I, I want my body to be served for something else, not like cremated or, you know, buried in a, a coffin or something. I, I want to, I want to enter the circle of life again. You know, like it, it, Absolutely. The, my body, body, my, my body should go back into the natural world somehow. Yeah. I'm not know? trying to like take up more space here. Yeah. Yeah. I should probably research this before saying it. So I'll caveat this with saying, if I remember correctly, it's the Jan religion, um, like J A I N religion who, when, when a person dies, um, they're placed up onto a very large, like, uh, stone pedestal for vultures and such to come mm. and uh. you know eat them. Um, mm -hmm. I couldn't. I couldn't find a gentler. I way mean, to I, that I know last that part, uh, uh, Tibetans uh, do that. That's like a Tibetan kind of tr uh, uh, thing as well, where uh, vultures take their body. So yeah, yeah. So it has a use. It's mm -hmm. got a per nothing is wasted. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, you'll this will be the dark segment of your podcast. <laughs> yeah, we've been really dark. Yeah. Death and dying. Yeah. Well, let's talk or, about. Um, let's start. Let's start somewhere. Just talk a little bit about how you were raised, like uh, spiritually speaking. What was your life growing up? In that yeah, way? spiritually speaking, I was raised in a an actively atheist household. Um, mm. My mom always referred to herself as a card carrying atheist. And she had grown up in a Christian household, and my dad had grown up in a Jewish household. And so there were touches of, I think, maybe cultural influence from, from both of those. Um, Hanukkah and Christmas were both things that existed in my life each year as a kid. Um, as I stopped being a kid, they became a little less of a thing in our family. And, you know, I later realized, like, oh, it's because... Either like grandparents were into Christmas and or kids love presents. And like that's a thing that we do, especially in America, is find out how we can uh, bring some commercialized um, commerce uh, injected into, into the things that we do. Um, so, yeah, those were just light influences. Um, but they became, oh, the Jewish part of of me actually started to blossom on its own. I, ne I never connected with the Christian mm. part of things. I didn't, mm. I really honestly didn't have very much exposure to it. Um, but the Jewish stuff, I felt like I could relate to more. And perhaps that's because also the Jewish side of my family were the people who I saw more growing up. I really mm. saw myself in them when I then uh, I started out college at the University of Miami in Florida, and mm. I wandered up to the steps of Hillel at the uni at the UM campus on like the first Friday of my freshman semester, and I it was probably only like three steps, but I felt like I was like looking up like the long steps of the Capitol or something, and looking up and just um, feeling like, and then declaring to the woman who was standing there. 
I don't know if I belong here. Hmm. And she said, of course you belong here and literally grabbed me and pulled me in. And then when I was in the foyer at like, everyone was speaking. I was like, oh, everyone sounds like my grandparents. <laughs> like even, these people who are my age sound like my family. Like they, they're all speaking in the same, uh, there were a lot of similar accents going on. Also just the same manner speaking and sense of humor and everything. So I felt really connected to my Jewish side in that way. And then because I'm a musician, I got super into Jewish music. Hmm. And there was even a point where I was like, oh my goodness, maybe I want to become a cantor. And then I hmm. realized that my atheism kind of conflicted with that. Like I was super into it and I also love language. So like the music and the Hebrew, I was so into it. And then I read the translations of what I was reading and I was like, oh, I don't like actually know how much I connect with what I'm saying, but I love how it feels to sing it. Hmm. Do you, um, did, was there, now was there any curiosity growing up? You know, I, I feel like a lot of times, um, a lot of my parents, who, or a lot of my friends who grew up atheist, um, there's all, there's always that moment where like, should I go explore Christianity or they can invite the youth group or they start to dive into their cultural heritage a little bit. And then there's that pull, that tug. And then there's that, that conflict and that cognitive dissonance of like, is atheism right? Is theism right? Did you ever experience any of that? Yeah. And something that was really, um, kind of a big deal for me was when I had this epiphany of like, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a cantor, but my Jewish identity does not have to conflict with my atheism. That, you know, for many Jews, it's a God optional situation. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so that- Where did you grow up? Where was this? Where- Oh, well, those are two different things. I grew up in rural Virginia. And then then Southeastern Virginia in maybe not so much of a rural place. Like when I was in high school, I was in more of like a tertiary American city, kind of Mm. like still not a big place. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I had my high school was like 2000 people, so it was pretty big. But I don't Mm. know that there were more than 10 Jewish kids in the entire school. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was really not. uh, We were not a majority. And. Uh, I remember actually in high school, like word got out that I was an atheist and especially like my marching band friends and everything, like there were people who started treating me differently. Hmm. And I remember this one guy was just like, I just didn't know that about you. And he was so disappointed and like really didn't know what to think of me. And trust me, I was then like, I'm definitely not going to come out to these people now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, I mean like, like oh. to not be Christian. Oh, no, no, I mean, like the fact that they reacted poorly to finding out that I didn't believe in God really discouraged me from then also telling them that I was gay. I see. Okay. But like, is, is, so the, the, so the school that you uh, um, grew up in and the community that you grew up in, was it, so it was pretty much uh, Christian for the majority. Is that Yeah, is that uh, yeah. It, it would be very fair to say that it was majority Christian, um, majority conservative. Um, mm. It's funny, though, again, like when I kind of flash myself back to like marching band and everything, the like gospel crew totally embraced me. I felt very much embraced by them and then by like the punky queer outcast kids like mm-hmm. those were kind of the groups that i was most um welcomed into 
Mm-hmm. Which interesting, interesting. I, I do yeah. wonder. I, I remember in my own experience in high school. Uh, I, I feel like if I if I knew you then, right, and I was a different person back then, I, I'd be less disappointed if if I found out. Oh, you're you're, you're a practicing Jew versus uh, an atheist, because I'm like. The, the Jewish faith is like, oh yeah, it's just kind of like the distant cousin of Christianity, but we we did we did it better because we got Jesus or something like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly, for clarity, like I was not a practicing Jew growing up. Um, I mean, I I practiced lighting menorah candles, and I did go to JCC summer camp one summer and made like challah bread pro- probably very poorly every Friday, but I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what any of it meant. And it wasn't until college that, like, that was kind of my big, like, college experimental phase was like, oh, I'm going to go be Jewish. Like, I'm going to go proactively, Hmm. actively be Jewish. And it's funny because then when I transferred to Berkeley College of Music, only a year and a half later, Berkeley didn't have, like, sports or school clubs that really had anything to do with music. And so it's not like there was a Hillel there. And so that kind of quickly died away, like in, in that way, like I still had that as a part of me and it then came back a little later in life, but Mm. it was not, uh, it was not a constant thing. And I would just say in general, um, you know, Jewish culture has been kind of with me starting from more like, yeah, that freshman year of college era through now. Um, mm. But I can't say that there was ever a time that I felt... I'll, I'll put it this way. There's never been a time that I wouldn't still identify as an atheist. And that's been mm. the case, yeah, just my entire life, including then, of course, um, when I got introduced to Buddhism like eight years ago, the fact that that wasn't even just like God optional, that was like God nah. Like that it they're just it's not a theistic religion. And I even it's funny that I just called it a religion because I tend to not even refer to it as one, even though mm. yes, it is. Mm. But I know for me the word religion is so wrapped up in a meaning of typically a monotheistic um, situation, maybe polytheistic, but there's still this theism. There's this God mm. figure. A divinity kind of. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I really loved that that's not present in Buddhism. Right. Like there is no creator in Buddhism. There is no like divine entity who's ruling the world and who issues punishments and rewards like there's that just doesn't exist Mm. and i like that 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 vibes Mm. with me um but it's certainly not the main thing that draws me to buddhism like it's it's all the other stuff that then is there well can you uh maybe backtrack a little bit and and uh, reflect on what like what what led up to you being uh what what led up to that moment when buddhism became something that you wanted to explore was there something going on in your life that made that 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 spiritual community uh, you know attractive absolutely i can tell you very specifically when it was it was memorial day weekend of 2013 
And I was doing very poorly in life. Like I was in a very, very low spot. I've dealt with depression for as long as I can remember. And there have been times in my life when it's been quote unquote better and worse. Um, but yeah, this was a particularly challenging period. And big shout out to my friend Mira Zeitlin, who is also a queer Buddhist Jew. <laughs> a queer boo Jew? Queer yeah. Jew? <laughs> <laughs> um, so Mira recognized the pain and bad situation that I was in and was like, come with me to my family farm uh, next weekend. I'm hosting a, a retreat there. Ba, ba, ba. And actually, I don't even know why I said ba, 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 because I actually feel like she told me very literally nothing other than come with me to this retreat at mm. farm. Like those are like the only words that I took in. And I said, yes, OK, I'm there and packed what I needed for a few days. And it wasn't till I got there that I found out that it was a silent retreat and that it was a Buddhist thing. I, I just trusted Mira with my life and still do. And I knew that she was looking out for me. And I know that she has this energy around her that I love being around. So if this was something that, that she really stood behind, then it was probably going to be something that would be really healthy for me. And it was. So it was only a four-day Vipassana retreat. So that was my intro to any of that. The teacher was this amazing South African woman named Arena Weissman, also a queer Buddhist Jew, <laughs> which I didn't realize all of this, but yes, it's true. Um, and she was so gentle and amazing. Mm -hmm. And that weekend changed. Uh, that, was, that was a true turning point in my life because I realized, even though Arena had been very clear at the beginning of the retreat, she said, do not try to solve any of your problems this weekend, which was so wise. And I think about that anytime I'm in a retreat now. Um, but I, I felt like I was in this community that where everyone was truly wanting to be happier and wanting each other to be happy. And I felt that what I was being introduced to were tools to attain that. Mm -hmm. And being that it was a silent Vipassana retreat, there, were, there was only but so much uh, instruction, so to speak. And there were Dharma talks each night where a teacher teaches some element of dharma of the buddhist teachings what, what, and, is, what is dharma for people who don't know what dharma is uh the simplest explanation is that it's the teachings of the buddha so i mean you could roughly equate it to like the torah or the bible sort of but mm -hmm. yes so to, it's common for teachers for teachers to give what are known as dharma talks and it's where they will take some element of the Dharma and talk about it. And what's really neat is that teachers generally will be infusing their own personality and their own life stories into these talks so that it's not so um, like academic, hmm. so to speak. Like people want you to connect with it and you, and you should, I, I think I, people are best served by 
being with teachers who can present this in whatever way is going to be best for the student. But I, I'm going to get a, I'm getting ahead of myself thinking of that stuff. But that's how I got introduced to this. And all I knew was that I still don't really know what this is, but I know that this felt good and that I want to dive further into this. And I want to keep this feeling going. I want this sense of community to keep going. Hmm. And so then I became like, okay, on Monday night, I go to Dharma Punks. On Wednesday night, I go to the Shambhala Center. And on Sunday evenings, I go to the queer meditation thing. Like I had like my routine and my schedule and I was just like, I'm doing as much of this as possible. And each thing was different. Each center was different. Each teacher was different. And so, yeah, a huge turning point for me was being introduced um, to Buddhism at that four-day Vipassana retreat. The real, real turning point was actually at one of those queer meditation nights. I showed up. Oh, and I actually brought Mira with me for the first time. Everything comes back to Mira. <laughs> and, um, and I showed up and things were laid out differently. Instead of there being just like a small circle for us all to sit in, there were cushions all set out and like facing the front of the room. Like clearly something was happening. And so we sat down and, you know, I don't really know what to explain to me. I'm like, well, this is different. I don't know what's happening. It's like a, like a Buddhist square dance going on or something. Yeah. I was just like, I, I, sorry. Now I'm like flashing back to, cause you know, grew up in rural Virginia. So I'm like square dance. Can we also talk about contra dancing and, <laughs> and the friends of Appalachian music dances at the Norge hall? Anyway, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me extract <laughs> myself this, this from is that. For, this is for the next Period. podcast. We'll, we'll yeah, do, exactly. We'll do a we'll whole contra about, music uh, yeah. <laughs> episode. Count me in. Um, but yeah, then this woman just like, there was this, this feeling as if like the doors both flew open and this woman and this presence and this energy just burst into the room. And I had never seen uh, a monastic a Tibetan Buddhist person before. And so this woman, like she comes in and she, like she has a shaved head and she's wearing robes and she's getting down and she's doing what I later learned were called prostrations and then getting up and she started speaking and she was speaking a million miles a minute. And it like took me a minute to realize she was then also speaking in an Australian accent. And so it took several minutes for my brain to just adjust to being able to understand anything she was saying because everything about her was so unexpected. And her name is Venerable Rubina Corton, and she has completely changed my life. There she is. Matt is holding up a picture of her right now, her beautiful smiling face. And yeah, that that picture that, that Matt has of her is something that was from an event that I hosted a few years ago where I brought Rabina out to LA to do a weekend of teachings. But it took several years before I got to that point. Mm. I was just introduced to her then, completely like just because I had gotten into the habit of going to each of these meditation nights and one of them she happened to be speaking at. And it turned out that that was her first speaking engagement out of a whole week in New York of her doing different talks. And so I was able to attend, uh, it was either three or four more of her talks that week while she was there. And I, I just couldn't get enough. Like as soon as 
I can't say as soon as she started speaking, because like I said, it took me a few minutes to even recognize that she was speaking English. But (laughs) several minutes in, like once I was really hearing what she was saying, it shifted everything for me in terms of how I was viewing my connection to Buddhism, because I suddenly was like, oh, this is the actual deal. Like she is, she is a true practitioner and teacher. She is, you know, I later learned like she had been ordained for like 40 years at that point. She was once uh, a bodyguard for the Dalai Lama. She was like a Kung Fu expert and she was like a formal, excuse me, a former um, lesbian separatist feminist and like had all these other lives um, and was just such a fascinating person. But the way that she spoke about Buddhism and the way that she spoke about the Dharma and the way that she spoke about how it applied to every second of our lives, particularly the manner in which we think and that we process everything, it blew my mind. I hadn't heard Buddhism discussed in that kind of, um, not just philosophical, but psychological Mm. uh, way before. And it resonated with me. She was speaking with such tough love And I love that. Maybe part of this is also like, there is something that almost again reminded me of like my Jewish family where it's like, everyone's kind of talking fast and everything is like very like, you know, I'm not afraid to offend you because I'm just going to tell you what's up. And, you know, there's just so much love there, but there's also a lack of censorship in the best way. And I love that. I, for as much as the kind of gentle approach, I know that that works for a ton of people. A lot of people prefer that. I think that that's beautiful and I love it sometimes. Generally, I want to be slapped across the face with mm-hmm. reason yeah. and logic and be told, I love you, please make better choices. <laughs> you know? when, you, when, you did, when you did the uh, Vipassana retreat, just backtracking a little bit, had you, yeah. had you been an active meditator at all or was that like your first? Oh, completely brand new. I, not only had I never done it, I didn't know anything about it. Meditation was a word that, like, I was aware that that was a noun in the English language, but I didn't know what it meant. Yeah, because I, when I, I did I did a ten day retreat out in uh, Joshua Tree, and at that point, I only meditated. Uh, I built up to maybe ten minutes a day using you know the Mind Space app, and I'm like, oh, I got this, I got this, and I was in for a rude awakening. Uh, and I remember the process for me of of sitting. And just judging myself for not being able to sit for a full hour without moving and then seeing everyone else around me so stoic and unmoving. I'm like, oh, I almost quit in the middle of it. It was hard. It was hard. Um, but luckily, one, you know, one of the teachers was really, was really great. And it was just like, just, just give it one more day you know, and gave me some, some insights. And sure enough, I finally had that breakthrough where everything sort of just clicked you know, and then it became hard again. It was like, so it's always <laughs> like, it's easy and it's hard and it's easy, but I, I, I'm, I'm curious about how you felt like when you, when you first started sitting, never having had meditated and was it, was it like a traditional Vipassana retreat where uh, six to 10 hours of meditating a day, you wake up at 4am, you meditate and you have breakfast, you hear a teaching, then you meditate and you have, 
is was it like that or what was the what was the format yeah i mean that was that was pretty accurate um yeah it was waking up pre-dawn and yeah meditation breakfast a little bit of free time meditation dharma or uh, meditation with instruction and then maybe like walking meditation and then lunch and then yeah it was it was just many many sessions throughout the day and, and just doing that alone you fell in love with, you fell in love with this practice no i i don't know that it would be accurate for me to say that i fell in love with the practice um i would say that i felt really intrigued by it hmm. and that it held some sort of promise, so to speak, for me. And what I mean by that isn't like a magical promise. I just mean that like, oh, I can tell that there's something here. I hmm. don't know what it is. So like I I wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't feel accurate for me to say that like I fell in love with it because I didn't know what it was yet. Hmm. I just knew well, that there was something there. Well, you talked about this uh uh, a shift that happened when um, I'm sorry. What was her name? Venerable yeah. Romina. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, when she spoke, you said there was a, a shift that happened for you in terms of what this was about what Buddhism was. Can you just talk a bit about what you used to think Buddhism was, and what you know? What was was there something specific that made that she said or something that you felt uh, or she made you feel that made you go, oh, this is a rabbit hole that I, I, I want to go down from now on. Yes, there were a couple things. Um, pre prior to that, I felt like a bunch of the, and, and bear in mind, I got to hear her speak only maybe five months after, only four or five months after being introduced to this at all. Um, so pretty soon thereafter. And up till that point, I felt like most of what I had been taking in was um, just these gentle thoughts of like patience and compassion for oneself, which is mm. very valuable. Um, but what shifted so much was with Rabina's teaching, I felt like I was given more active tools. I, f I felt like I was given, I felt like she practically gave me a job to do. I felt mm. like instead of just being nice to myself, I was being asked to look really critically at every single one of my thoughts and argue with them and ultimately be able to stop having irrational fake dumb thoughts i mean she wouldn't phrase it quite like that but also not that far from it <laughs> like what um, is a but, what is a rational fake dumb dumb thought i mean i mean I, I just be, just because like the way you talk about it it makes me seem like like i'm i'm probably gonna it, it makes me feel like i'm gonna judge myself a lot after i, I go oh, through that <laughs> um, thank know? you for bringing that up because uh, yeah i would love to kind of clarify that so i'll tell you one specific I'll tell you two specific things yeah. that came up. In the first session with her, she was using this analogy about a garden that I still think about all the time, um, which is she was referring to, you know, your life and your mind, like 
as if it's this garden and emphasizing that like you can't just go be like, well, I'm going to have veggies and flowers and all roses. Like there's so much other stuff in the ground. How do you even know what a rose is? How do you know what a proper veggie is? How are you going to separate it from the weeds if you don't really know which one's which? And this whole idea of not just cultivating the good stuff, but identifying the useless crap and then being able to kind of quote unquote weed it out. Hmm. That was mind blowing to me because she comes from this perspective of like what's truly at our core and what's fundamental to us is all that good stuff. It's already there. And Hmm. that the biggest job is ridding yourself of the crap of the delusions, of the anger, of the uh, of the selfishness, of the jealousy, of the like constant patting yourself on the back and telling yourself how awesome you are and being cocky. Like all of that stuff is based in delusion. And that if that stuff is removed and lifted, all that's left is the good stuff, the virtues, the being kind, being compassionate, being wise, seeing things clearly. That's already there. And and a a visual that comes to mind for me a lot is like, I kind of picture myself, it's like, oh, I'm like, I'm here, I'm I'm, I'm in here, but I'm like caked in layers and layers of mud that I need to get off of me. Mm. And that it's not just about like, oh, I just need to be better to my, I'm just extending this analogy here. It's not just that, oh, I need to be better to my body and everything. It's like, no, you actively need to get this stuff off of you. Mm -hmm. And so with that garden analogy, I was just like, oh, I have a job to do. I need to not just pull out these weeds because like, yes, I do want to go pull out the weeds, but I need to first be able to identify them. So now... Mm -hmm. I've been given this job that's kind of a full-time job, which is pay attention to your thoughts and be able to identify which of them are actually delusions, which of them are rooted in in the stuff that makes you feel shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, which of them are rooted in, in this false view, this wrong view? Mm-hmm. And just kind of having these steps in front of me of like, oh, okay, like I can, I can, I can understand this analogy. I can understand that I first need to be able to identify a weed before I can pull it out. And I need to pull them out before I can properly plant my veggies, so to speak. And and to further extend this analogy, like, I think one of the things that, um, Obviously, with my with my religious upbringing, I, I I have a lot of hesitancy towards really really embracing any other spiritual practice fully, um, and I often I often say that Buddhism is what is what I feel closest aligned to. That I feel like I could become Buddhist, and a lot of what I'm already doing as a practice aligns with what Buddhism teaches. Um, but there's some there's some aspects, and we'll get we'll get into we'll get into that in a little bit a little bit later. Some of it, but there's some aspects. I'm like ah, it just feels like religion in some way. Um, and so there's there's certain areas. Extending this this garden metaphor is um, looking at uh, like clinical depression kind of kind of setting. Like how do we know like 
all right, sometimes, yes, we can say that's a weed, but we're misidentifying the weed. We're in a delusional space versus, no, the, there's not enough water. There's not enough sun. There, the environment in your brain is not, is not right. And you need, you might need some medication or something to then yeah. start the process of identifying those thoughts. Does that make, does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because like I said, I've dealt with clinical depression my whole life. I've been on medication now since 2014. So it's been about seven years. So yeah, I got on medication actually pretty shortly after, now that I think about it, like maybe six months or so after meeting Rabina, I got on medication. And in the same way that I said like, oh, I identified with certain aspects of Judaism because God didn't have to be involved. And oh, I really liked the fact that the Buddhist quote unquote religion doesn't involve a God. How cool. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I loved that my, uh, my, tr my, not just trust in science, but like my observed, uh, you know, what's the phrase I want? The benefits that I have observed from science are not in conflict with hmm. Buddhism. And so, I mean, if anything, with the whole garden analogy, I would say that like, you know, if, if you have terrible eyesight and you can't see properly what the weeds and flowers are, even if you have learned about them, then no, you've got to go, of course, get some glasses first, like mm. go get mm. yourself in a position where you can see things clearly so that then you can do a good job. So, and this is, this is just me talking. I'm not saying that every person who uh, says that they're Buddhist is going to feel the same way that I do about this. But what I have taken from it and the way that I treat it is just like anything. If you need medicine, like me thinking that I have lower cholesterol isn't going to help my cholesterol. Yeah. And me mm. thinking that I should be happy is not going to stop me from being suicidal if that's what like is physically and chemically going on like in my brain, like on a physical level. Like I'm not like when when I was super suicidal in the past, it's not because I wanted to be or because I was sad in a way where there was something to fix or there was any, trust me, like I tried thinking differently. I tried doing everything until hitting several breaking points. And mm. it became so obvious that I needed to do something more concrete and that well i mean frankly i had nothing to lose at that point mm -hmm. so i went on medication and within a couple weeks i felt like i had emerged from this cave that i didn't even realize i had been in mm. and that did not solve everything at all i didn't suddenly then have all the answers but i did suddenly have glasses and I could at least see reality a little more clearly. I mean, I felt more like myself. Mm, like, okay. it was like, oh, this is what my eyes are supposed to be seeing. Like, oh, this is right. what the world looks like and can feel like. And this is what I look like and feel like. And, right. and then Buddhism has just been th this additional tool for me that's mm. then been like, okay, now that I, on like a medical level, am able to think and see clearly, what do I get to do with this newfound eyesight that I have? Mm. How can I use this? Because, 
yeah, no matter how well you've studied learning to drive, if you're not seeing clearly, you're still going to crash. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious just what, what the, you know, when you say you grew up atheist in an atheist kind of household, what, what was your um, outlook on the world? Like, what was, what were you taught about? Like, what was your vision of the world that you grew up in? You know, I mean, I, I guess, for example, um, my parents, you know, because I grew up Christian, my parents taught me, hey, you love God first and then you love us. Like, that's the the hierarchy, right? God first and then your parents and then so on and so on. Um, and your number one priority is to serve God. Like, what kind of... What was the the yeah uh, foundation that you think you had when you grow when you grew up as a child that your parents kind of uh, fostered in a way the vision of the world? My mother taught me what she referred to as the golden rule, which I think she's not the only person who refers to it that way, <laughs> which is treat others how you want to be treated. I think that's, I mean, I'm assuming that's what other people also re- define as the do golden rule. Do unto others, be, just be chill to everybody, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, do unto others. Yeah, yeah. so if yeah, you want to say unto, you can. Or you can say treat others how you want to be treated. Yeah, do <laughs> unto others as whatever. I mean, what, yeah, whatever, the modern whatever world, phrase does it for you. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it was about we love science. Science is real. And when you die, you die. And... Go enjoy your life and treat other people well. Go be a nice person. Go be a good person. Go mm. give what you can. Be who you f- feel that you are. Um, you know, like I, it was certainly, of course, you know, in the 1990s in Virginia, it was a little bit of a shock. Um, and it wasn't super easy when I came out of the closet. And my brother had come out only a few months before me. Mm. And... I mean, thank God, which is so funny for me to say that, Um, (laughs) but thank God I had parents who didn't think I was a sinner or anything like that. All they wanted was for me and my brother to be happy. They didn't care what that looked like. They didn't care if that meant that we were both gay. They didn't care if that meant that I was going to go be a musician instead of a doctor. Like it didn't matter. They were so loving and warm and welcoming and affectionate and athletic. And, you know, they, they very much fostered a, like, um, my, you know, one of my mom's other things that she would say all the time, which again, I'm sure is not unique to her is actually, I wonder if for y'all, if it was like, a, do y'all know that phrase, a family that prays together stays together. Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe that's a very common thing. My mom's version of that, that she taught us was a family that plays together stays together. That works too. That's that's a fun one. Oh, it was so great. And so we were a very, very active family together. We went water skiing together. We went bike riding together. We would have game nights. We were all very into Canasta, which is Uh, a four-person two-deck. Oh, I love that card game. What's that? Oh, okay. Card oh game. yeah, it's it's a card game that's traditionally played by people over the age of seventy. <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> that and euchre. Euchre was the other game that I loved. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like we spent a lot of time together. So, like, family was very important to us. Love mm. was very important to us. Support was very important. Academics were very important. Being physically active was very important. Um, God didn't factor into any of it. Like that just huh. wasn't 
that wasn't the language or the lens through how we were taught to be good people. Huh. So it was never really part of the vernacular. It's it was more no. about it's it's more about hey, how do you deal with the people around you? You know, you ne you <laughs> never had to deal with like who created the world? Who created the universe? Why are we here? That kind of almost like existential kind of question. I genuinely uh, don't child. remember. I don't yeah. remember ever having a single conversation like that as a kid. Yeah. I remember talking more about like, you know, what does this, what's this muscle called? And how does physics work? Like, I remember mm -hmm. talking, like, you know, when we were discussing bigger things, it was more like, why do tire why do bikes with flat tires go slower oh friction on the road physics bah, bah, bah. <laughs> like the, you know those were the discussions that we were having yeah. um one like one of the the concepts in buddhism that really troubles me you know not really troubles me i just i, I i'm constantly wrestling with is the idea of karma yes. the and that was i will say the one thing I did appreciate about the Vipassana meditation retreat um, with Goenka, I mean, it was, it was all recorded, right? Because he's you know, long, no longer here. But um, uh, is he was he would always say that uh, it doesn't. It, you don't have to buy into all this all this stuff. Just do the practice. And just it's like a very scientific approach. Just practice and see what it does. You know, I'm going to be talking about these things about karma and things. If you don't believe it, whatever. Just do the practice. Um, but what what I what I found is like when when you get beyond just the 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 Hallmark card version of karma, which you know, which is like basically do unto others, right? Do be nice to each other, which is for me is, is the version of karma I grew up with, which is just like you know, be good now, good return now. But when you talk about past lives and reincarnation and and moving through uh, um, like what the station that you're born in into life. It has is directly related to your past karmas. That is something that I really struggle with, and the the irony is, um, I feel like every time I, I enter into a, a Buddhist temple or, or teaching or something, like there's another karma karma talk, and really getting into it, I'm like I just I struggle with this idea that um, people were are. Um, don't have a say in, in, in how they're born now. Like if you have a shitty life, if you grew up in a shitty situation, it's because it's something you did out of your control in the past. Now you can, we can debate what, what that means. Um, and obviously we can do, we can do better now to move ourselves into the future life. But that, that concept right there is something that I still, I'm constantly talking about and wrestling with in my head. Cause that's about that for me moves it more into that spiritual religious space. Now we're talking about something outside the physical so what, what is your understanding of karma maybe? And, and let's, let's talk about this. Let's process yes. this. So for me, I would define karma as a natural law of cause and effect. And when you were just talking at the end about the aspect that you struggle with of like how then it starts to seem kind of spiritual, the thing that jumps to my mind is like that it would seem that way only if you think that someone is saying, ah, you've done poorly. I'm going to stick you in a shitty house. Like that, that there's, because the, you know, if there's a God, 
involved, then God is the punisher and the rewarder and is the judge and is saying like, here's what you did good, here's what you did bad, so here's what your future is now going to be. Whereas karma doesn't assert or even posit the notion of there being a being that is keeping track of that and tallying it and judging and and all that and then assigning a certain life for you, but rather if it is a natural uh, a natural law of cause and effect, then there's no one who's doing that to you. It's based on your actual past action. So like something that I find really um, empowering about that is more the idea of self-creation. And that helps me feel empowered, not just about who I am now, but and not just who I'm going to be like 10 lives from now or something. It means that it helps me understand who I can be tomorrow, not because karma comes back and, you know, affects you that quickly, but rather it's part of this whole philosophy of change and you know, of, you know, I think, I think the, um, the, the hang up for me isn't the cause and effect of it all. It's like, if you believe that we are this one soul that goes through these different lives, it makes sense. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm dealing with the actions. I have to deal with the consequences of, of my actions. I just, I do. I think maybe the hang up is the the reincarnation or the continual like if 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 we're a materialist and like this is this is it this mm -hmm. is our life here um I can get behind karma now in this in this life but then thinking about um I remember like Rabina told a story about um I think it was like an abortion that she had and she was talking yes. about this life that came into her and whatever whatever it was dealing with in its past lives caused it to meet her at the point when she decided to have an abortion. And this was all before she became Buddhist and she would never do it. I remember this story really vividly. Yes. And I'm just like, oh man, that's, I don't know how I feel about the a system that, you know, that, uh, that, that has this as an idea that, um, that, I don't know. The, the person that always comes to mind is like Pol Pot or Hitler. You know, <laughs> like he gets reborn. They get re Pol Pot or Hitler, like a really terrible person, gets reborn. Pol Pot. Pol Pot. Pol Pot. Wait, why have I never heard this? He, he, Wait, he, I, a genocide dictator. What country was he from? I can't remember. Uh, I it was. Uh, anyway. Uh, uh, or Hitler. Uh, Hitler, Hitler. I can understand. I'm so. I can't yeah. believe I don't know the other one. Wait, no, yeah. now, now I'm like, okay, now I gotta look this up. Uh, Pol Pot. Well, well, maybe we'll edit this out. Maybe we'll keep keep it in. <laughs> Pol Pot was the former prime minister of Cambodia. Um, oh, that guy. Okay. Yeah, oh. that was, it was Cambodia. I was going to say Philippines, but it was Cambodia. Uh, he was a communist and is in Marxism. And it, there was, I'm pretty sure there was a genocide. Anyway, um, that's not the point. That's okay, sorry. <laughs> No, I, no, it's true. It's a good, it's a good thing. I shouldn't be referencing. I shouldn't be referencing someone that I can't directly say this is what he did and this is why I'm using him as a terrible person. Um, but I guess, I guess I, I, I play it out in this like um, logical space. I'm like, okay, Hitler, terrible person, did terrible things, uh, dies, and then where's he? So then is he born into someone's life where he has to get aborted and deal with this, deal with death in his in his cycle or their, that person's cycle. Um, I, I, or I often think about, it, I try to personalize it and my sisters had a really, really tough life, a really tough life. And, 
and I've had a, and comparatively, I've had a really like a lot of a lot more blessings. And what we both had the same upbringing, at least from a, a, a same parents, same ex socioeconomic status, same religious stuff, and. Uh, I'm like, I just, I just really struggle with this idea that something she did in the past life uh, led to her having to deal with and work out this shit in, in, in her current life. You know, I mean, I, I'm kind of, I'm struggling to, to identify it because I really, I really want to understand it and I really want to, you know, find a way to reconcile it within a scientific mindset, you know? Can we also look at the fact that, wow, she did so many amazing things in her past life that she got to be born a human and got to have a roof over her head and doesn't have, you know, super severe allergies to her environment. And I mean, I, I don't know enough about your sister to like, sure, sure. I want to be careful about like which things I name as examples because I don't know if, if they'll all apply. Um, but something that is very interesting that comes up with this kind of conversation is people almost always, and actually maybe to say almost is giving people too much credit, they perhaps always ask why bad things happen. Hmm. But they don't ask why good things happen. Hmm. When they come from, in, again, just with this theory, with this hypothesis, they come from the same rule of cause and effect. So, okay, so maybe this bad thing happened to you in this life and this bad thing happened to you in this bad thing. Also, here are these amazing things that we're not even looking at and are just taking for granted. It's like, oh, well, of course I deserve that. Mm. Like, well, why? Maybe it's because you actually, like, did something great. Like, you can celebrate that. Like, part of uh, an encouraged philosophy is to kind of wake up being like, wow, I'm still alive. How amazing. Like, this wasn't a given. (laughs) And, you know, I I think that there is something to, like, you know, there's a little bit of more the gentle flowery version of, like, think about what you're grateful for. Um, That's fantastic. If you want to think of it in this context, you could look at it as that, like, all the good things that you have, aspects of your health, the fact that you live in a, you know, we're not in a war-torn country, yeah, no. Right now, like, yeah. you know, there's all these things like, oh, well, then that means that these things are also the fruits of my past karma. So why do those get so much less weight for us? Well, do you believe the that bad then? ones? Do you do you re- do you believe in the the concept of karma? My answer to that is going to be that I don't like the word believe. Mm-hmm. Um, my thought about the concept of belief is that it is intellectual laziness and it feels, yeah, it feels lazy to just say, I believe it feels like too much of a, just like a choice. Like I'm, I'm going to choose to believe that that sounds good. And the way that I see this, I've, I've totally borrowed from Rabina. She refers to it as her working hypothesis. And yeah. I like that, perhaps because I was raised by two scientists yeah. and took science fair projects incredibly seriously. I like that concept. I like the concept of like, oh, I'm going to take this on as my working hypothesis. And I'll say that so far, 
things have checked out for me. Like there's like so far there hasn't there haven't been things that I've come across in Buddhism that have been like, oh wait, never mind to all of this. But if but I'm open to that. If right. if there comes a time when it's like, oh actually no, then you know, I'll keep what what did work and I will then throw out the rest and yeah can easily walk away. I, I, I love that because I think one of the things one of the things that I do struggle with 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 religion is a lot of religions will come with you have to you have to embrace the whole dogma, the whole Bible. it's it's you you can't pick and you, you can't pick and choose. I mean people do, but real true practitioners are gonna say no, you have to embrace the whole thing. And I think it's one thing that I always appreciated about Buddhism and, and starting with that Vipassana retreat, like, you know, just try it out and see if it works you know, and don't, it's, it, don't get hung up on, on the words that we're using, just do the practice and then, and from a scientific standpoint. And I think one of the things I've been, I've been reflecting on, even just from this car, cause I'm trying to reconcile this concept. I like this idea of working hypothesis. Cause I feel like if I say, I believe in karma, that means, I have to bring in all this baggage with 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 that worse versus as far as I know, you know, it, it checks out. Um, but one of the things I have been thinking a lot about is and I'm using a new word that I just learned with epigenetics. Um, this right click define uh, epigenetics. It's I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm going to do my best. It's I think it's the system and like uh, the study of um uh, of uh, basically, your who you are is made up by the fact of like not only your environment but your DNA, your family history, the family trauma that gets passed through generations, and and that um that's the what that's the way I, I understood it because I was describing for me I was thinking about karma in this space of we can definitely see like a lot of the stuff that I deal with in my personal life is things that my dad, my dad dealt with. And I'm sure it's things that my grandfather dealt with that can easily be seen as, as a, a karmic tra trajectory. I was also thinking like, what if, what if we discover that molecules have neurons or they, that they carry direction in them. And then as our body decomposes and you're being moon, as you're being eaten by, by, uh, um, by mushrooms and worms and things someday, your, your your oxygen molecules, your carbon molecules, those, they aren't dying. They're just being transformed into something else. So does the makeup of who you are then sort of pass into these other beings? And does the the trajectory of your life force move into these other beings? And for me, I'm like, well, I can, in my rudimentary space, I'm like, I can maybe see that as a possibility of, of making the idea of karma work work for me um well also i mean just to add to that i mean the uh i mean i know a little bit about this because um um my wife and i did ivf um and epigenetics is a big part of it because uh, we use an egg donor uh because so epigenetics is basically uh, there's a dna which is the blueprint of by the way i, I love that i love us. that you let me struggle with my definition yeah. of epigenetics, <laughs> knowing nothing about it and you're like well i thought you I were gonna go somewhere is. with it <laughs> you were so but, uh, patient listening but uh, uh, so epi epigenetics um is basically uh to put it in a very simplistic term it's about the interpretation of dna so there's the blueprint of what how we are built but depending 
on the life that uh, that we lead, whether it's their health or emotional health and things like that, there are things that turn on and off certain uh, genetic sequences that uh, interprets our DNA. So for instance, if you go through a certain traumatic uh, childhood or traumatic event, or if you go through a certain kind of uh, health kind of event, um, your genetic sequence can be turned, uh, certain things can be turned on and off, which can be passed down into your um, uh, uh, descendants. You know, so a lot of traumatic events uh, can definitely uh, trigger thing, things in, in such nature. I mean, uh, to to kind of uh, to put it metaphorically, I, I think it, it's it's sort of like how um, there is a song, you know, the original song, which is like the DNA. And there are covers, right? People do, who do covers and people who do covers are the epigeneticists in a way. They're, they're the ones who re can reinterpret the, the original kind of, kind of blueprint in a way. I mean, that's, that's definitely how, how I think of it, uh, especially because, uh, you know, we use an egg donor uh, for our baby. Uh, so it's almost like we got a blueprint from somewhere else, but my wife is the one who kind of did, did a cover of the original blueprint to make our child, oh. you know? So that's the, that, that, that's, 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 that's a very like dumbed down, simplified version, but you know, not an accurate version of what epigenetics is. And, and this right here is the core of what our, what swimming in the void is. It's like stumbling around some concept that we know nothing about. And then the real expert comes in, like, let me correct you. In this case, it was moon, correct? <laughs> Because I had a real life experience about it, you know. We could, we we you know we. It was so eloquent. Had, it was so great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we had to, you know, it was a, it was a big uh, sort of uh, decision that we had to make in terms of, um, you know, is this a, is this a route that we want to go down in terms of having an egg donor instead of uh, having um, just like adopting a kid or keep going for you know whatever. But um, yeah, it's um, yeah. So that that's mm. we we had to learn a little bit about it. So yeah, that's, that's that. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I, I can start to see, um, I think the worldview I hold now is I do want to have some sort of connection to the, the, the divine and by the divine, I mean, uh, something bigger than myself and this, so that can be anything. It doesn't have to be a, a God or, or, or a religion or anything. Um, and w within that, I, I always want, I always believe that science will shed light on, on, eventually shed light on, on our, our experiences. And if religion or spirituality or the, the way you see the world um, doesn't jive with, with science, then you got to rework your, you know, your, your worldview in a bit. Because I, 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 for me, I, I, I'm sure you could, I mean, anyone could point out tons of magical thinking in my life right now. I, I have it. I'm wearing a crystal. Come on. But, um, <laughs> but, but, if I, I always want to keep myself in check against that science, which is why I think I love, which why I think I love you. I love talking to you about this stuff, Lauren, because you do come from that background, and there are very few people I would trust to have this conversation with. Well, think that I feel a lot of responsibility in that. <laughs> <laughs> when did you go to Berkeley, by the way? I was at Berkeley. Let's see. I graduated in two thousand five, so I was there. Oh, okay. Uh, I I went to Emerson. Oh. Uh, and graduated in two thousand six, so we were like, you know, we, we could were, have been we, at some of the same shows. Yeah, we could we could have seen the same people there. You know, that's so, awesome. I mean, yeah, I I remember. Uh, actually, I don't know if you remember. Uh, 
because I worked with a composer named Ines Tybalt. Do you remember her? Yes. She was yeah. in my ear training four class, my first semester. We both placed into ear training four. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> she scored my. She was uh, awesome. What, what? Oh, she was amazing. Yeah, she scored I mean, I my, one of my film projects. Then, but I yeah. like totally remember my first day of class being in class with her and being like, "Oh, this girl's so cool. I want to be yeah. friends with her." But then like never yeah. actually following through because I was probably too shy. Yeah, no, she's super talented. <laughs> yeah, she scored my film, and uh, yeah, I, I knew a Ber bunch of Berkeley people. Uh, I'm still friends with the uh, this guy. His name is James Tolson. I don't know if you remember. I would James need to know which Tolson. instrument. James played. Uh, he <laughs> was, uh, man, I don't remember which instrument he did. Like I say, yeah. you're so objective. You're objectifying James. He's just like, he's just an instrument to me. That's all he is. <laughs> I was in so many people's cell phones as Lauren Bassoon. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's how we, a lot of people knew each other. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess um, just uh, sort of circling back around, just like putting a, a, yeah. a, a period on our karma conversation. So yes. I think... Um, like uh, I, 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 I feel like I've, I've, it's been explained a lot to me. I, I, I understand. I, I think I understand it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, what I'm wrestling with is the continuation of, of a, of a spirit of a, some sort of spirit beyond this current life. Yeah. So the language that I'm familiar with is um, that it's the consciousness that continues. And as far as how karma impacts that next life, I mean, there's many different ways. It, it affects the environment that you're born into. Um, there's all these things that you, that, that we have done in the past that will then ripen in certain ways in our future. And there's also different karmic connections that exist. Like if, if we know each other now, here's something to be excited about, Matt, is that, uh, the, the concept and part of the theory here is that like, we have some sort of karmic connection sometime in the future, we're probably going to be right back here. Like either one of us will be each other's parents or we'll be friends again or something, <laughs> you know, like, because like that connection exists and it probably existed well before this. Mm. Perhaps that's why when we met, there was just already something there. Yeah. Like maybe yeah. it's not our first time meeting each other. Mm. And again, for anyone who's like about to turn this off right now because you just so can't buy this, that's okay. I mean, feel free to not turn this off. Um, but you don't have to you don't have to take everything here. Take the parts that that work for you. Um like Matt was saying, like there isn't a rule here that like you gotta take it all and you gotta take it all right now. Like that's take your time. Mm. If there's just one or two concepts that resonate with you and like, let's be real. Some of these things are really big and you could just spend the rest of your life thinking about like, I could spend the rest of my life just trying to identify weeds that I need to pull out hmm. of my thinking. Like if I just did that, that would make me a happier and more beneficial person in the world just by doing that, even if I took on nothing else. Mm. I happen to have gotten, uh, you know, enamored by some of this stuff enough that I've gone further than that. Like I've, um, I've officially taken refuge. Um, I did that several years back where I took the five lay vows um, and I've then gone on pilgrimage in Nepal. Tell, and me, about, tell me about what those, those vows are. 
So those vows are um, to refrain. So first off, I really wanted to speak about the language of it. Um, I mean, people might use slightly different language here and there. The language that really, really resonates with me, and again, part of why this feels more okay to me than what I classically think of as religion, is that it's, I don't, I haven't seen it phrased as like a thou shalt not, or like even just don't, um, or rather refrain from. It's more, I feel like I'm being more like invited to do something mm. than like commanded to do something. And so the five lay vows are to refrain from killing, to refrain from lying. Though mm. there's other parts of, there's other aspects of harsh speech that should be avoided, but let's just generally say lying, refrain from lying. This next one could be phrased as refrain from stealing. Though the phrase that I really love is instead of the word stealing, taking the ungiven or mm. taking that which has not been offered. Mm. What I, something that I really like about that is that it, it includes things that don't necessarily, quote unquote, have an owner. You know, it's like if, if this hasn't been offered to you, then yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, refrain from doing that. Um, then refrain from sexual misconduct. Mm. So that... When it's a lay vow, that doesn't even mean like don't have sex. It means refrain from sexual misconduct. Now, um, and it's a lay vow. It's for the lay, the lay person, not not exactly it's not a monk's vow. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, there there are other. Yeah, if you're going to go the full monastic route, there's going to be other vows. There's bodhisattva vows. There's tantric vows. But just the five lay vows are those four. And then the fifth one is to refrain from intoxicants. So mm. that would be alcohol, drugs, anything. I mean, the the real mm. idea there is. Like, and something that I like about Buddhism in general is that like the mind is placed so central. And when I was giving that analogy earlier of how like, you know, me taking antidepressants is helping me have glasses mm -hmm. so that I can see more clearly. Um, wow, I somehow just lost my own analogy and train of thought here because... <sighs> From the garden, from oh the garden, God. from the vows to the garden. I know, I've been so many, like, garden and glasses and, <laughs> and all these things. Oh, with the vows, the intoxicants, that the big reason for that isn't just like a, it's like, because I say so. There's none of that. It's that your mind is the most valuable thing, and mm. it's so precious, and you want to be able to see and think clearly. So don't, I don't want to say the word don't refrain from things that are going to mess with that. Hmm. So for me, again, like antidepressants are not messing with my mind. They're helping my mind see things more clearly. Yeah. Alcohol hmm. or drugs for me, no. And it happens that, you know, that vow is the easiest one for me. I still make a conscious effort to do it, but it's uh, truly the easiest because I've never liked alcohol or drugs. Hmm. So like very literally nothing changed in my life when I took on that vow. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I mean, the others, I mean, they're, they're conscious. And the idea is to, to live in them, to, to respect them and to think about them, uh, ideally daily ideal. I mean, ideally, ideally every minute of your life, but you know, I, bonus, if you can just, if you start the day and just acknowledge them and remember them, you're probably not going to, break them yeah and oh sorry go ahead 
No, I say, and is, is this a is this a is this a vow meant for life, or is this a vow meant for a specific time, or it depends upon what where you are? Is that the intention behind those vows are for life? Got it. Got it. I mean, I, I mean, but just looking at like um, the last vow, uh, intoxicants, because I'm not like, uh, I, I am, I am, I have not taken that vow. I'll just, I'll just say that. Um, but what I often do, uh, I mean, part of this journey, and I will, we'll probably get into this over the time, the course of the podcast, is I've spent the last 10, 12 years really just exploring all this stuff and and putting different intoxicants in my body and see what happens and and. Uh, I've had some really uh, amazing transcendent times. I've had some really like dumb times. I've had some really hard, sad times, and, and all of it. And, and you real, I, I, for me, I realize if it's not, if 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 I'm taking something that's causing me to run away from really learning about myself or, or, or exploring, if I'm using it to to cope, as opposed to dive into whatever trauma I need to be processing, that's when I need to stop and go like, I shouldn't be doing this thing. Um, if I, if, if I have a drink, if I do a, a drug, it's gotta be, how can it enhance this current experience in a way that my sober self can benefit from that as well? Mm. Um, like going on, like doing an ayahuasca retreat and learning something deeply. Now I'm not saying every single time I've done a, a drug has been like, I'm going to pray and, and connect to the mother earth and all this stuff. No, hell no. But, um, but I've now sort of come onto the other side where, uh, there was a time when I would, I'd have a, a box of random drugs. I'd be like, oh, yeah, let's do this. Let's do that. I, I really want to connect in this party. And I'm, and I realized what that was, was a, a deep insecurity, a deep, uh, self-loathing. And then you take, you know, a pill or something, and all of a sudden that just goes away. And mm -hmm. using your using your analogy, it's like uh, that was a clue to me. Like, no, I need to stop and pick some weeds. I can't, I can't, I can't just like put on like uh, uh, you know a, a pair of glasses, one blacked out, and ignore the weeds on the other side of the the thing. Which is what you're doing essentially when you do a drug, right? It's like half my glasses are blocked, and all you see the good stuff, but the bad, the bad. The, the bad stuff or the stuff you should work on is still there. Yeah, I love how you put that. And I will say that as far as that vow of refraining from intoxicants, same thing with, as with so much of what we're talking about here with Buddhism, you don't have to take on everything. And in fact, when I've been at uh, refuge ceremonies that Rubina has led, because I've actually gotten to um, take refuge with her several times. I mean, there was the first time and then kind of renewing the vows simply because I've been at other teachings where she was doing it. Um, and I think you'll enjoy this story. I was once in Liverpool, England, and at the end of this multi-day thing, she was leading um, a refuge ceremony for everyone who wanted to participate in it. And so she was going through and, and describing the five things. And everyone was like, wait, wait, so hold on, let's talk about this. So do you mean just like, you know, I mean, you can still drink, right? It's just like, don't get like shit faced. And you know, it's just like not about going to like past a certain point, right? And she's like, no, no, it, it means don't do it at all. Like, you know, like, no, you're completely refraining. And everyone, like, like nowhere else, because again, I've seen her do this in, in even London and in LA and, you know, these other places and people have just been like, 
okay. Or like understood, like, oh, I don't have to do all of these. But yeah, in Liverpool, it became like a discussion. Like people really wanted to know to what degree could they still drink and have it be okay. And she ended up having to just be like, y'all, like you should not take on that fourth one. Like when we do this and I'm naming the five things, you say the ones that you intend to actually take on. Mm. And you do not, you do not take on a vow that you do not intend to keep. Like, no, that's not... That is, that's that's not what we're doing. Oh, absolutely not. So so even when you're doing it, you don't have to take on all five. And so something well, I found so hilarious that day is, so the way that it goes in that particular part of the ceremony when it's doing it is that the teacher will name these five things. And then because the students are repeating and like, you know, they're saying these vows for themselves. And so then the teacher will be like, you know, I'll refrain from lying. Everyone says lying. Stealing, stealing, everyone says stealing. And then, uh, you know, killing, everyone says killing. Sexual misconduct, everyone says sexual misconduct. And then she says intoxicants. And it was like me and one other dude were like, intoxicants. <laughs> and, like, and the rest of the room just dropped silent. <laughs> and so like, I loved that. Like they were just like, you know what? No, that's not, that's not for me or mm. that's not for me right now. And I loved that. I loved that there was room for them to make that decision. Yeah. And it was mm. totally supported and fine. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I, I remember, I mean, I remember doing the Vipassana retreat and uh, we, we did have to take those, take those vows. Um, and I will say that those 10 days, uh, it was one of the hardest times of my life. I, I, I I've never been in prison, but and I, but I often joke that it was like prison with better food. Um, and, uh, no sexual misconduct. I'll just say say it that that way. Um, but when I came out of that, those ten days, I was more grounded than I'd ever been. More present. I just felt like it felt like you could feel the moment just dripping off your off your skin. And this lasted for months. And, and I, I got mm. into a daily meditation practice where I was meditating in like a, an hour a day. That's awesome. And. And then, and then three months later, I got into a pilot for TV and then my life got all crazy and I've never quite gotten back there. And, uh, I do want to get back to a, a retreat. Um, cause I do think there is something about clearing out all that stuff and focusing and getting yourself on. It's like, it's like a track of a, of a train, right? And once you get yourself on a good track, it's a lot easier to keep, keep the engine going. Um, not that it's going to be perfect, but if you're, you know, if you just have that protected space, then you can keep it going. You see the benefits of it. And I, I will say that, like, I do believe that each of those things, uh, done too much is, uh, is a, can be a hindrance to being present. Cause a lot of that stuff is, um, blocking you from the, from this moment. Are you referring to those five the vowels? Yeah, the vowels. things? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, something about Vipassana retreats that I, I love that they are, they're set up in, in, like, you're set up to succeed with those things. Like, oh, how can I make sure that I don't lie by having a rule of not talking? <laughs> cool. Like, because breaking vows aren't, like, that's not particularly cool like you want to avoid that again not because anyone's gonna punish you but like but just that's not what we're going for so 
if you can be in a situation where you can have the intention of like, I will not lie, and then you can practice that by not really being up against it, what a perfect environment for you to like, kind of learn what it feels like to not lie. Because I mean, and lying doesn't always have to be like the most, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily like an evil big thing. Like it might be a lie that you're saying to yourself or that you're like, oh, I, I want to make sure that I look cool in front of my peers. But it's like, oh, well, everyone is kind of just looking down at the ground and not talking to each other. So like, I don't need to pretend that I'm like a fascinating conversationalist mm. or anything yeah. or that I'm interested in what you did yesterday or any of that. Like there's, it's really set up so that you, that, like there isn't anything to steal. You're not talking, so you're not lying. And you know, hopefully you're not killing anyone there. And <laughs> there's, oh, just interesting side thing about the killing thing. So when the Dalai Lama gives talks around the world, so occasionally he'll do um, refuge ceremonies. And something that I've been told is that in other parts of the world, he'll straight up do like refrain from killing. But apparently, again, this is, as I've been told, because I haven't been to one of his ceremonies in the U.S., but apparently in the U.S., at least, he doesn't say refrain from killing. He says refrain from killing another human being. Hmm. And he does that because he wants people to take on vows that they'll actually stick to. And huh. he knows that, like, in the U.S., like, if a mosquito lands on someone's arm, they're probably going to just smash it and kill it. Or whatever it may be. Like, there's just so many instances where a person will end up breaking that vow and not even realize that they are or think that they are. And so he amends it, which I think is quite wise to something that people can be like, okay, I can hack that one. Mm. And because, uh. again, I, I do think that it is important to only take on something as strong as a vow if you if you mean it. And if you truly intend to do it and you don't have to like it, you don't always have to take on a vow for life. You could just say to yourself, like, I'm going to make an effort to not badmouth my coworker for one entire day. Mm. See if you can do that. And then like after doing that for a while, see if you can up it to a week or just even two days, yeah. whatever. But like, don't just suddenly be like, you know what, I'm gonna not do that anymore. I'm never gonna badmouth them again. Give yourself a goal that, you're can, that you can achieve. Cause that's mm -hmm. gonna feel great when you then look at it and you're like, oh, I did it. I stuck to, to what I said I was gonna do. I said that I wasn't gonna shit talk that person for an hour or whatever it may be. Like set a small goal for yourself and achieve it. One, one of the visuals that I came away with from this retreat, the Vipassana retreat was, as they're talking about the karmic system, yeah, uh, I, I visualized it, and maybe they explained it to me. So uh, if this if this is how they said it, I'm not trying to steal their idea. Uh, it was like it's like a quadrant. You know, you have like positive and, and negative karma. You know, and you're when you're born, if you're born from a from a negative space, you have a choice in life. You can continue moving in the negative direction, or you can start moving in the positive direction. If you're born from a positive space, you can start moving in the positive direction and keep moving towards enlightenment, or you can move in negative space away from it. And but what I loved about that is it's not about checking all the boxes and then all of a sudden you're, you're in heaven, right? It's about let's start moving in a positive direction. 
And moving in a slightly positive direction is far better than than moving in a, in a greatly negative direction. So if 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 killing no no beings is the goal, but we can start with humans, that's positive, right? That's, that's positive. Let's 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 applaud that. And then, as maybe as we grow in our in our practice, we can start taking on like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna let that ant go, and then maybe I'll start start being a vegetarian, and maybe I'll start thinking about th- this way. Yes, and. That whole idea of like all like deciding how you're going to think about something, that's so powerful because you know there's that expression like you are what you eat, and I my personal version of it is more like you are what you think, mm-hmm. like your thoughts really make up who you are, and what's exciting is that we get to choose what we think, and so we get to choose who we are and who we become, and. If there's this idea that that like the way that habits work is that you get good at whatever you spend your time doing, like if you get good at film editing, you get then you become a really good film editor. You've like made the habits of like learning these keystrokes on the keyboard and you know, you spend a lot of time doing it and you're good at it. Similarly, if you spend a lot of time like being an angry person and like getting mad about stuff and being judgmental and like talking behind people's backs, then you become good at that. Mm. And so you get to choose what you become good at. You get to choose what your habits are and you get to choose to change them whenever you want. Mm. I find that really exciting. I, I would mm. like from, from my experience and I'm, I'm doing a lot of work right now in, in uh, like internal, like I have a new therapist. We do internal family systems. I went through this Hoffman process and a lot of these things I'm, I'm looking at is how we all have different parts. And a lot of times we don't acknowledge that um, there's a spiritual part, there's an emotional part, there's a physical part. And sometimes we'll just have a reaction and we're not, we're not able to identify like, oh, this is like the like this deep emotional wound I had, had had as a child, right? Or my body needs some food, but I think it's this emotional space. Trying to identify these parts, but part of that for me is also we don't. Sometimes we we don't choose our thoughts. Like our thought, like where do the thoughts come from? You know, and you have like that the classic angel demon, you know, the angel and the devil on your shoulder, and and this debate. Who's debating in your head? Who are these people? And why are they at odds? And for me, it's like the trick for me is the thought arises. Then, then that's when that's when your responsibility comes. You can choose to react to that thought, or you can choose to pull it as a weed and, and gravitate towards another thought. So um, that's that's one of the ways that I've been processing a lot of this stuff lately. Yeah, that that thought that that visual that you just painted of the angel and the devil on the shoulder thing, like I when I heard that I was thinking like okay, what if they're called something different depending on what the context is? It's like oh, okay, this is the voice of my anger speaking versus here's the voice of my compassion or my concern or whatever. And yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, the devil might be called something different depending on what the exact situation is. Same with the angel, obviously. Like, everything isn't just about anger and compassion. Um, But either way, yeah, it's like, which quality are you listening to? Uh, Rubina likes, when you said, like, who is that talking? Rubina likes to refer to all of those jumbled uh, 
thoughts as her crazy roommates. <laughs> and, you know, that like, oh, they're just talking again. Like, you know, which ones do you kind of need to not listen to? Mm. And which ones do you want to listen to? Yeah. What are the qualities that you, uh, which, who are the voices that you sit on your shoulder often? That was an amazing question. <laughs> First off. There's Debbie and there's Joni. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the one that I like to call on or ask to please come over would Katy be... Perry. Katy Perry? <laughs> I was going to say something more like wisdom, like something that will help me like look at something clearly. Mm-hmm. Wisdom. Okay. Wisdom. Yeah. yeah. Like that takes, you know, I don't, I don't fully have wisdom yet. That would be awesome. I look forward to continuing mm. to cultivate that. Um, in the meantime, I want to make the clearest and wisest decisions possible. I want to be mm. able to see things as clearly as possible and make sure that I'm not making decisions based off of something that I'm assuming. A big rule that I made for myself several years ago was, because I realized how much I was making decisions based off of fear and how Mm. largely most of those fears had to do with what other people would think of me. Mm. And I made a rule for myself that if I'm wondering what someone is thinking or what they would think about something, then I have to ask them. Hmm. And that if I'm not willing to ask them, then I'm not allowed to think about it. I'm not allowed to factor that into whatever my decision is. Hmm. Either just actually ask them or you've Hmm. just discredited the idea of whatever you think that they're thinking and you are not allowed to factor that into your interactions. That's and a good rule. That's, yeah, like that. oh my God, that's a good rule. I mean, you know, I, I, I do that all the time. You know, I usually think of the worst possible voices of other people, you know, saying all these things. And uh, yeah, no, no I, I do. I definitely do that all the time. But I, I like that rule of limiting yourself to be like, no, like you are not allowed to. You're not allowed to make assumptions about yes. uh, what other people are thinking necessarily. Because, yeah, a lot of the times you don't know. You know, you usually don't. I mean, I know at least speaking for myself, what I've learned from this is that I'm basically always wrong (laughs) about what I think someone will think. The the biggest uh, life one that like inspired that shift for me was actually a work situation. I was the head of a couple departments at work and I I really didn't want to be like, that's not who I was. And Mm -hmm. it kind of just happened accidentally, but I, I kept myself in those roles because I felt this level of responsibility. I was like, oh, I, well, I brought on most of these people. Like, I don't want to let them down. I don't want, I, a big thing for me is I didn't want people to feel like I was abandoning them. Mm. And I was so wrong about everything that I assumed that people would think or what would happen to them. And I wasn't just wrong about it, but because I was focusing all my attention on these things that of course ended up being incorrect, it also prevented me from seeing the the other things that actually were true. For example, I didn't realize, or I, I was again, just thinking so hard about like, oh my God, people are gonna be disappointed and mad at me or whatever. I didn't think about the fact that me stepping out of that role meant that everyone got promotions. 
They were all stoked. Everyone got promotions. People didn't have to deal with the fact that like they had a Debbie Downer as like a boss figure anymore because I wasn't going to be anyone's direct boss anymore. And so, yeah, they didn't have to deal with my negative energy. And they all got promotions and raises. And I can't believe I didn't think of that. Every single person was happier. Everyone won. Mm. And it was like, oh, mm. my God, number one, I could have done that sooner, but that's okay. I did it now. And actually, that's not number one. Number one is, wow, I was completely wrong on every single front here. Mm. And that was when I was like, oh, wow, I cannot base things off of what I assume people are going to think anymore. I just can't because mm. I'm wrong. And there's no point. I can just ask them. I can just mm. ask them, hey, what would you think if such and such? Or how would it affect you if such and such? Yeah. And if I'm not brave enough to ask them, then like admit that whatever you're probably thinking is wrong. Mm. What a great lesson, though. What a great lesson. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. I mean, I know it took, it took, it was probably painful getting there, but you know, you, you wouldn't have, it probably wouldn't have made quite an impact unless you had you know, drawn out that process as long as you did. Oh, no, no, no. If I hadn't had it be such an incredibly painful multi-year process, it wouldn't have felt quite so good to then realize how wrong I was that entire time. And that's why then it was like such a strong thing for me of like, oh, mm. I can never let this happen again. Yeah. Hey, um, I, I want to respect your time and I, and I know it's getting, it's getting late. Um, I, I want to make sure, you, I want to talk to you about your music. I want to talk about La Luma because that's also an important part of who you are. And I want to, I want you to be able to, I don't know what, what, where's, where's yeah. the second album? What's going on? Like, let's talk about how, um, maybe we can start with how does, how does your practice, uh, impact and influence your music? It's interesting. I would say that the way that it has influenced my music, uh, in the past few years, like, especially like after I put out my debut album and obviously like we worked together on the video and I was, you know, did some tour dates with Mira, of course, because again, everything comes back to Mira. Um, like I felt like I was very, you know, I was doing my version of being an actual artist in the music industry. I've worked in the music industry all this time. I know the things that people are supposed to do. And I found myself uh, refraining from ones that I knew weren't, weren't me, but also doing a lot that I, but also doing a lot of things that weren't me. I'm not a social media person. Like I, that was the most uncomfortable thing for me and brought me such like unjustified levels of torture. Um, but also just the, the kind of inherent like self spotlight thing that happens when you're an artist in this way. Um, I realized certain aspects of it were really fun and fulfilling for me. And there were other aspects of it that I, that, that I didn't so much like. I didn't like how, I didn't like the new lens through which I was seeing my own art and mm. through which I was seeing music. And I had already dealt with music becoming my job in a lot mm. of ways. Mm. And so then the aspect of then my personal music creation, having this other lens and weight to it, um, it's not so much that it made it less fun. Like I'm fine with what has happened, but it has shifted the way that I've been approaching it than the past couple years and the way that I'm, that I anticipate approaching it now. 
I've been making music still, but less frequently. And part of that has just been COVID. Like I've, I've moved, I took forever to get myself set up again. Um, but I also just haven't needed it in quite the same way. Hmm. Um, I think that I have other things in my life that fulfill certain aspects of my personality and my drive that music doesn't have to carry all of that weight for me anymore. I have some other outlets. Um, but it's funny because I actually, I just wrote a new song a couple days ago and it was for the first time in months that I've written a new mm. song mm. and it came super quickly. And it was after I had had this realization of, oh, I'm not even set up properly to be able to record when ideas come to me. I. I was actually watching the beginning of the St. Vincent Masterclass. Mm. And mm. so Annie Clark is a longtime friend, and I used to manage St. Vincent back in the day. And I realized, like, oh, I haven't watched her Masterclass yet. And I, and I put it on, and first off, I was just like, oh, my God, this is why, like, we always connected so well. Like, we speak the same language. This feels so good to hear you talking about all this nerdy music stuff. Um, but she said something specific that really resonated with me um, regarding creativity. She said, if you want to get hit by a train, you got to stand in the tracks. Mm-hmm. And I realized I tore apart my train tracks and I haven't set them back up yet. Mm-hmm. And so I I actually like kind of stopped right after that episode. And I was like, you know what? that's enough for me to feed on right now. And I went to my room and I actually properly set up my plugins on my new computer and got my gear set up so that, so that I can record so that I can create in a way beyond just hitting record on voice memo on my phone and then never remembering that it's there again. Like really, um, yeah. Giving myself, you know, kind of like with the how we were saying that the Vipassana retreat, like you're set up for success in that way. The tools are there for you to be able to follow through. And that's what I needed to really put into place for myself here was actually physically setting things up. So I didn't realize how I was like had created this physical barrier for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so properly setting that up has just truly opened um, kind of the gate. You know, I didn't want to use such a cliche, but like it it really has, um, well, it's put me in the tracks so that I can get hit. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you had to create a container for your for your creativity to flow. And without, without the container, it was just kind of running rampant and you didn't have a way to contain it. But now you know, like it's here. Yeah, well, yeah. it's like I wanted to get out on the water, but I wasn't ever building a raft. I was just looking at it and being like, oh, that'd be cool. It's like, I just know. come on. Like do, especially when you know what you need to do in order to make it happen, then you've just got to do it. I mean, this is where like that Nike slogan really is the most brilliant <laughs> one-liner ever. Just you do, do have to just, you do like, just yeah. do it. Yeah. And you know, there's a, 
a few years back I was in Berlin and I was in some like used bookstore or whatever thing. And I found this postcard, like this little note card just randomly tucked into, um, like onto a shelf and it's a picture it's a drawing of a little girl holding a flag like holding up a banner and the banner says it's always worth it hmm. and i put that on my fridge and had it there for years it became like my uh like my motto my my goal was like to to remember that they're like oh it's always worth it like make the effort it is worth it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, seeing uh, Annie's masterclass got me uh, got me up to go build my railroad tracks. It is always worth it to set yourself up so that you can express yourself or whatever it is that you want to do. Like, give yourself the space so that when that stuff comes, mm -hmm. you have somewhere to put it. You have somewhere to, especially with music. Oh my God. Like the number of things that I've been like, oh, here's a cool melody. I'll definitely remember that. No, you won't. You will not. You have to record it, whether it's voice memo or in logic or whatever you want to use. Like you have to capture it. And I've, I've began kind of seeing that almost like as a job. Like if mm. there's an idea, you have to capture it. You will not remember it on your yeah, own. You just yeah. won't. <laughs> so yeah, I've been like um, in a new phase of like thinking differently. And actually I started kind of plotting out um, some potential like, ooh, here's some, here's some songs that I have made over the past few years that could that I could see being on the next album. And so I'm just really mm -hmm. taking my time with it because there's no one who's like, hey, we need that second album now. Like there's no deadline. And... I don't want there to be. I want to actually enjoy this. Yeah. And so that is, that's my rule. I and, and that's what, and that's what got you here in the first place too. You, you took your time. Yes. You know, how, how long did it take you to make that first album? You, you, you broke it all down. Didn't you strip it all down and start all over again at one point? Oh, you bet I did. And then yeah. it took me a year from that because I then finally learned some real, I mean, as soon as I learned about busing and some actual audio engineering things, because of course I was like, okay, I'm going to write everything. I'm going to record everything. I'm going to play everything. You know, I wanted to do everything because I, I wanted that experience. It's I wanted to get the joy of like learning all these things and getting to do them. And yeah, at one point I was like, okay, I've got that, I'm done. And then like I learned just a few super critical things about audio engineering and mixing. And I was like, oh God, I gotta, I gotta scrap this whole thing. I mean, you know, I didn't delete anything, but I had to completely start the mixing process over. And because I was truly teaching myself from scratch, I mean, it, it basically took me a year <laughs> to then do it. And I'm so glad because now I'm actually comfortable and know what I'm doing to a degree. Mm -hmm. And I now feel like, hey, if this next one, if I then want to have someone else master it, or excuse me, if I want to have someone else mix it, then I'll choose to do that. And I'll be able to communicate with them mm -hmm. better about it because I'll, I'll be in um, possession of some of the same vocabulary as them well um let's yeah. uh, wrapping up here um where can people hear your music on spotify and wherever else people listen to music and so how, yeah how do you spell your how do you spell your band name how do you spell your what and what does it mean tell me tell me like how do you spell it yeah so it's spelled la luma l-a space 
L-O-U-M-A. So a lot of people think like, oh, La Luma, like, you know, luminescence or like Luna, like the moon. And I do like the, the idea of light coming from it, from that like Luma idea, but it's not spelled that way. It's L-O-U-M-A. And the reason for that is because it turns out it's very challenging to come up, or at least for me, it was very challenging to come up with a name for yourself that isn't just your name. Like, I, I didn't want to just be Lauren Ross. That didn't feel right to me. So I needed and to Lauren, come up with Lauren something. Lauren Bassoon was... Lauren Bassoon was taken. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I needed to come up with something. And I, you know, played around with all these ideas. And the thing that then really resonated with me was actually thinking about family. Going back to that mm. idea that you asked of, like, kind of what were some of the founding principles that I was raised on and what were the priorities and, like, things that were important? Family. And so La Luma is actually a combination of several of my grandparents' names. Wow. And because I was like, oh, that's something that, like, I'm not going to get sick of. That's something that I'll always be able to get behind and feel good about. And I won't be like, oh, I can't believe I named myself this dumb thing. It's like, no, that's that's family. That's that's me. I I can always get behind that. That's great. Interesting. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. I could have talked for hours and hours more. This we'll have you back. Such a, we'll have you back please. on, and when you have some yeah. new music, you know, I'd love to have you play something for us. That'd be amazing. Oh, that'd be awesome. I would love that. Y'all, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast. I really can't wait to hear every single episode that you do. Uh yeah. This is this is our um, this is our fourth the second we guest. Well, yeah, yeah second guest. I third, mean, yeah. Yeah. Technically, our third episode. We did we did our we did our first one, which someday we may we might do, where Moon and I took turns interviewing each other. It was like four Ooh. hours later. We we're both like uh, passing out, um, but it's been it's been fun. And, and for me, this is just speaking for myself. I just wanted to have an outlet to help um, share some of the stuff that I've learned and struggled with, um, yeah. and to give people a chance to speak speak up about their process um relating to spirituality and science and it's not going to be i just want it to be fun and light and every you know maybe an episode maybe we'll release 10 episodes a year maybe i don't know keeping it light but you know it's great that you're i mean feedback as a guest it's so great to um I felt very invited to be myself and to say what I mean and what I actually think. And I'm so glad that y'all were strong participants in that too, that it wasn't just like, I didn't feel like I was just being grilled. I felt like we were having a conversation. That's great. That's what we want it to be. Yeah. We're all stumbling together on this, on this journey of life. We're all swimming in the void together. So uh, there we oh, go. Button. That was a good. That was a good button. Yeah. <laughs> End the podcast. I, yeah. I will say I, I'm impressed that we used a train analogy, a garden analogy, <laughs> glasses analogy. We had, we had a container analogy. I'm sure we yeah. didn't have. Do did we have a we cooking a, analogy? We had a raft for a second. Yeah. Well, we had uh, genetics too. So yeah. I'm sorry. Genetics. Yes. Yeah. That was lots of analogies, lots of metaphors, lots of references, lots of science, lots of philosophy, lots of psychology. Yeah. Lots of love.